Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Tomorrow, the 15th of September, will be the 10-year anniversary of the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. And a lot of people look at that event as really the seminal event of the 2008 financial crisis, maybe kicking off the financial crisis. And a lot of people still think that that was the only mistake or the main mistake that regulators made in that they allowed Lehman Brothers to go bankrupt. And what I have always maintained was allowing Lehman Brothers to go bankrupt was the only thing policymakers got right. Everything else they did was wrong. And in fact, they even allowed Lehman to go bankrupt because they still didn't appreciate at the time what the significance of that bankruptcy would have been. I believe that had Our legislators had Congress known in advance what was going to happen after Lehman went bankrupt. They never would have allowed it to happen. But of course, by bailing out everybody else, once they let Lehman fail and they just got a taste of how bad uh, the free market can be when it's trying to clean up a mess that government created, when they got a taste of that bitter medicine, they spit it right out. And of course, everybody else got bailed out. But that was the problem. The problem was not letting one firm fail. It was not letting all the other bag banks fail because we created an enormous moral hazard that is going to ensure that the next crisis is worse. We rewarded all the bad behavior. We kept the bad actors right in power. Uh, they didn't uh, you know, lose their money. The companies didn't go under. We didn't have a, a restructuring of the financial system so that uh, more prudent uh, stewards of capital would have taken over for the so-called too-big-to-fail banks, which, of course, are now much bigger than they were when we bailed them out before. And so if there was a systemic risk to the system based on the size of these institutions in 08, well, that systemic risk is far larger now because those institutions are far larger. And why is that? It's because the government bailed them out. Had they not bailed them out, the banking system would be a lot sounder today. You'd probably have a lot smaller players, but ultimately the more prudent bankers would have been rewarded and they would have gained market share. And a lot of these reckless risk takers uh, would have uh, you know, lost a lot more and not been able to repeat their mistakes. Nonetheless, uh, there was a lot of coverage in the financial media Uh, over the last several days, kind of commemorating or not really commemorating. I mean, it's not something that you'd want to celebrate, but just kind of looking back at that day uh, 10 years ago, right, the 10-year anniversary of something bad that happened, but kind of looking back at it, you know, what have we learned? Where have we gone? Of course, we haven't learned anything. And one thing that is very conspicuous is the absence of me, right? I mean, none of the 
networks, the financial networks that I was regularly a guest on leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, talking about Bloomberg or CNBC or Fox News or CNN or any of these stations, none of them called me to ask about my thoughts, right, about the crisis 10 years later. Uh, None of the newspapers that used to regularly quote uh, what I had to say uh, leading up to the crisis, none of those reporters called me to get a quote. In fact, during this week, the only companies that contacted me or the only members of the press, rather, that contacted me were foreign. Right? There were some you know, reporters from outside the United States that uh, called me up and you know, asked for my thoughts you know, 10 years out. What do I think now? I mean, why would the U.S. media uh, want to include me? After all, they don't want to highlight a guy that actually forecast in advance the 2008 financial crisis, they would rather spend their time interviewing the guys that helped cause the crisis. I mean, I even saw Barney Frank uh, was interviewed, but uh, they're, they're bringing out all the people. You know, I used to call them the the uh, the deck of cards, right? Uh, Alan Greenspan, I said he was the ace of spades in the deck of cards of who caused the financial crisis. Now, I didn't see Alan Greenspan interviewed by anybody. It doesn't mean he wasn't. I just didn't notice it. But all these people who caused the crisis, of course, are being interviewed. Now, most of them won't admit that they caused the crisis or don't even realize that they caused the crisis. But, of course, they're the ones that the media wants to interview. And, of course, they're interviewing lots of people from Wall Street who were completely blindsided by the crisis and people from government, and all of them basically look back at the disaster and, hey, the government saved us, the bailouts worked, the Federal Reserve, the quantitative easing, TARP programs, everything worked, and everything is fine now because of all the smart, prudent things that were done right in the aftermath of that unexpected crisis that nobody could have possibly seen coming and was simply a, a, a hundred-year flood And the government, thankfully, we had Ben Bernanke and we had Geithner and we had Henry Paulson and and, and all the guys were on the job. And thank God, right? That's, That's the lesson that we supposedly learned. Yet nobody realizes that everything that we did in the aftermath of the financial crisis simply exacerbated all of the problems that created that crisis. And The mistake that I've made was that when I was forecasting the crisis before it happened, and when I was also forecasting the mistakes that the government would make in the aftermath of that crisis, my expectation was that the government's attempts to reflate the bubbles that they had created in the housing market and the stock market, I thought their attempts to reflate those bubbles would fail because the markets would figure out what was going on and that a dollar crisis would intervene and and put an end to their plans. And as the dollar dropped, long-term interest rates would ultimately rise and inflation would rear its ugly head, and that would put an end uh, to the bailouts and the stimulus. Well, what I didn't understand or didn't appreciate was that not only was the Federal Reserve going to do exactly what I thought they were going to do, but they would not simply attempt to reflate the bubbles they would succeed and actually make the bubbles in both stocks and real estate even larger than they were when they popped. And so we now have the biggest bubble ever. But unfortunately, what that means for the United States is that instead of rectifying these problems years ago when they were smaller, now, of course, they weren't small, they were large. They're just horrific now. But instead of um, correcting the problems earlier, right, we dug ourselves into a deeper hole. In fact, we're now in the Grand Canyon of holes and there is no way out. And what is so remarkable about this coverage of the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis is that the same people who were blindsided by that crisis are confidently predicting that everything is great, especially now that we have Donald Trump and it's the greatest economy ever. It's the greatest boom ever. Nothing to worry about. It's just blue skies and and rainbows and sunshine. As far as the eye can see, the truth of the matter is 
there is a Category 5 hurricane. Probably, actually, they don't even have a number on the Saffron scale for how bad this financial hurricane is going to be to describe it. But this thing is right around the corner, just like the 2008 financial crisis was. And everybody is completely clueless, absolutely oblivious uh, to what's going on. So it's very fitting that as we're commemorating whatever, looking back at this 10-year period, uh, that we're doing so just as blind having learned absolutely nothing. And to make it worse, the conventional media wants to completely tune out guys like me or anybody else who might have seen it coming and could, to just whitewash history and, again, pretend that nobody could have seen this coming. And, again, if anybody ever brings me up, well, Peter Schiff is just a stop clock because, look, look how long he has been calling for another crisis, and he's been wrong. I haven't been wrong. I've just been early. The same way I was early about 2008. It wasn't like I just started warning about the 2008 financial crisis, you know, in the summer of 2008. I was warning about it in the summer of 2002. I saw that thing coming from a mile away. The problem is, you know, I see things coming from a mile away instead of, you know, right in the nick of time. But that's also a good thing because it gives me an opportunity to warn people and prepare them. The problem is sometimes when people prepare too early, uh, and then the event doesn't happen soon enough. They get frustrated and they give up. They lose their patience. And especially when they see, you know, the U.S. stock market now more recently, uh, you know, having another big run and people are, are missing out and they can't take it anymore. And they throw in the towel and they want to join the party. And of course, as far as I'm concerned, that's just a great contrarian indicator that the party's about to come to an end. And, and people are basically, you know, buying a ticket on the Titanic last minute and they don't even realize what they're doing. While I'm speaking about uh, financial hurricanes, I should also talk about the actual hurricane, Hurricane Florence, uh, that is now uh, bearing down on the, uh, the Carolinas. Fortunately, the intensity went down. Remember, it was a Category 4 early on, and there were some forecasts that it could strengthen to a 5 uh, before hitting shore, you know, or back at a four, but it actually slowed down all the way to a category one, which is still a hurricane, but you know, you're talking about winds of generally under hundred miles an hour, not 140 or 50 miles an hour, like you might get up at a category four or five. But the problem I think with this hurricane, not that, you know, 90 mile an hour winds can't do a lot of damage. They can. Uh, but I think the real problem with this storm is going to be the rainfall and the flooding. And of course, a lot of people who have homeowners insurance, they don't have flood insurance. And, you know, a homeowner's policy could cover the damage from the wind, right? If the wind blows something off your house, generally your homeowner's policy will cover that. And even as far as rain, if it's windblown rain, if the rain uh, is what causes a problem, uh, being it's blown into your house during the storm and things are damaged, then your homeowner's policy could cover that. But if it's a flood, right, which happens after the hurricane is over, right, this is just the, the storm surge comes up and it floods out. And that's usually where there's more damage. People don't have that coverage. I mean, most people have to get that coverage now from the government uh, and a lot of people don't buy it. Uh, and if you don't buy it, of course, FEMA is just going to start handing out money. So there's going to be a lot of government money that is obviously going to be doled out in the aftermath of this hurricane. In fact, Donald Trump is probably, you know, having been, you know, blamed for, you know, dropping the ball on Maria here in Puerto Rico. And of course, a lot of the problem in Puerto Rico is the local government, uh, not the federal government in Washington, but the government here in San Juan. Although personally, I, I don't believe the federal government should be involved in disaster relief at all. I mean, this is totally unconstitutional. This should be handled on the state level and the local level and through private charity, not through government. But nonetheless, that is the bad precedent that got started a long time ago. It's uh, you know very easy for politicians to go into disaster areas and place Santa Claus, and you get all sorts of votes right when you're doling out free money, but you create lots of moral hazards in the process. And as a result, uh, the losses ultimately from these natural disasters are much bigger than would be the case if we allowed the market to function. I mean, people with government uh, subsidies and with moral hazards, we keep building and rebuilding in flood zones and people are underinsured. And the cost to the federal government of these natural disasters keeps getting higher and higher. And one of the most disingenuous aspects of this is that the money that we spend on natural disasters, all the aid 
is not counted as part of the official budget deficits uh, that Congress reports, right? Because they say, well, these are, you know, off-budget items. They're not normal recurring. They're just emergencies. So we're we're not going to count them as part of our operating budget because, you know, it's just a disaster and it's just some emergency that came up. And so, you know, we don't want to act as if it's really in the budget, which, of course, is very disingenuous because every single year, there are emergencies. I mean, hurricane season comes around every single year, and it's not just hurricanes, it's fires. I mean, there's all sorts of national disasters. I mean, they declare the federal disaster errors all the time. So the government probably could look back historically and figure out how much do they normally spend per year on national disasters and then put that into the budget. Right. Set aside. Oh, we know historically this is how much we spend on natural disasters. So let's actually budget for it and account for it. See, that would be honest, but that's not what they want to do. They're not about honesty. They're about trying to hide the truth. So the budget deficits are actually much bigger than what is reported because the official deficits do not include the money for disaster relief. That's why, and it's not just that reason, there's lots of other deficit spending that is off budget. That is why, if you notice the national debt, every year the national debt grows by a much larger number than the official budget deficit for that year. So that means that the government is borrowing a lot more money than they're admitting that they're borrowing. Because even if it's off budget, that debt has to be recorded as part of the national debt because the government still sold the bonds in order to uh, to cover that expense. Whether they want to f- acknowledge that they borrowed the money or not, it's being borrowed and it has to be financed and it is ultimately part of the problem. In fact, we got a news story just the other day that the month of August was the biggest deficit Ever in the month of August. In fact, the government spent $433 billion just in August. That was an all-time record, right? The most money the federal government has ever spent in a single month was August. Unfortunately, that's not a record that's likely to stand. It's going to keep getting broken. But it was a 30% gain over what we spent in August last year. 30% more. And again, one of the biggest monthly deficits ever, but not quite a record yet, but the biggest in the month of August. Now, if this economy is really so strong, why are the deficits so big, right? Because a strong economy, if we really had a strong economy, wouldn't the government's coffers be flush? Wouldn't all these businesses that were operating in such a strong economy, wouldn't they be having bigger profits? Wouldn't they be sending larger checks to the government? Wouldn't all these employed people be paying more income taxes? Wouldn't all these employed people be uh, getting fewer government benefits You know, because of their need, right? Not as many food stamps, not as much welfare, right? If this was the biggest boom that we've ever had in history, why is the government spending more than it's ever spent in history. It should be the opposite. If the economy was so strong, the government should be spending less, right? Because we shouldn't need all this government spending, right? It's supposed to be counter cyclical. The government's supposed to be spending more when times are bad, right? To kind of pump up the economy. And when times are good, they can pull back. We don't, they don't need to spend as much because the economy is humming on its own, right? But here we have supposedly this great economy, yet we have the most government spending ever. What this really means is that we don't have this great economy. We have massive government spending. Because remember, government spending is part of GDP, right? That government, it's a big portion of in GDP. And if you jump government spending in the short run, yeah, you can goose your GDP. But at the expense of much lower GDP in the long run, because government is sucking resources out of the private economy, especially if the government is funding itself through debt, which is exactly what is going on here. We have just run up these massive deficits to dramatically increase the size and the cost of government. And in the short run, that is reflecting in higher spending, particularly, you know, as government doles out money. And a lot of that government spending, of course, isn't official government money because, you know, it's spent by the people who get the government checks. They go out and spend it. But all this is goosing the GDP in the short run. But, you know, Donald Trump, if he ran on a platform of draining the swamp, 
right? Draining the swamp means, hey, let's make the swamp smaller. The swamp is not smaller. It's never been bigger. The swamp is the biggest it's ever been. It's the most expensive it's ever been under Donald Trump. In fact, there was an article I just read the other day about Donald Trump's popularity. And the, the premise of the article is we've never seen a situation where the economy was so strong and the incumbent president was so unpopular. Now, I mean, I've seen a lot of these things before where they think there's a disconnect between how great the economy is and reality. Remember, they kept saying this when Obama was president, that people just didn't realize how great things were. But the fact of the matter is things weren't great. The same thing was happening going up to the 2008 financial crisis. I remember being on television in 2007, 2006, talking about this because the polls did not show a lot of confidence among uh, consumers, yet everybody was saying the economy was so great. And I kept saying that the consumers are right this time. The economy's not great. They're living in reality. They're not living in this fantasy land of government statistics. The same thing is happening now, except the Republicans are all in that fantasy land. I mean, if you look at the consumer confidence numbers now, they are way up there because of overwhelming confidence on the part of Republicans who just are blindly uh, believing that everything is great. And that's also why these small business confidence numbers are so strong, because the overwhelming number of small business owners are Republicans, and they believe all the hype too. They think that everything is great. But the reality is, even though people might think everything is great, they think things are going to get great. I mean, they know they're not great yet, but they're just expecting things to get great any minute now, because that's all they hear about how great the economy is. But for a lot of people, the economy is not great at all. In fact, Trump was tweeting out, there was a number that came out, and I forget what the uh, medium uh, household income, but it came out 60-something thousand dollars, or I forget exactly what it was, but apparently in nominal terms, this is the highest uh, family income, middle-class family income has been in the United States. And Trump was tweeting about how great this was that American middle-class families have never earned as much money as they're earning now, as if you know the middle class has never been as prosperous as it is right now, which is a complete joke. I mean, the middle class in America is a shadow of what it used to be. I mean, if you go back and you know look at some of these television shows from 1950s, 1960s, I mean, people like to pretend that well, that was like science fiction, but it wasn't. I mean, the American middle class, what it meant to be middle class in America before the great society programs of the 1960s, before government got so expensive and became such a burden on the middle class, right? Because the middle class had to pay for all this government. Despite all the talk about the rich are going to pay, the rich are going to pay, the middle class paid in spades for all this grandiose government. But when government was small, you know, when the middle class didn't even pay taxes, Right? And, you know, and they started paying the income tax in the Second World War, 1943. The victory tax was really when the average American started paying income taxes. And, of course, the Social Security tax didn't come in until the 30s. And even that was just 1%. And if you were self-employed, you paid nothing. Right? The self-employment tax didn't come in until much, much later. So in the 1950s, if a guy was self-employed, uh, owned a small business, he paid no payroll taxes, no Social Security taxes, and chances are he paid very little in the way of income taxes. I mean, rather in the 40s. In the 50s, he paid some taxes because the taxes kicked in uh, during the Second World War. Uh, but, you know, during the 30s, during the 40s, I mean, basically nothing. And, and so back then, the middle class was much stronger. I mean, if you look at a typical middle class family before uh, all the big government programs of the 1960s kicked in, uh, a middle class family might have a man who was the uh, the sole uh, breadwinner outside the home, right? The husband, the father, he had a job. Chances are he didn't go to college. You know, maybe he graduated high school, but maybe he didn't. He might have dropped out, but good chance he got a high school diploma, but not that many people went to college back then. And chances are he had a job, even if it was a blue collar job, forgetting about a white collar job, an executive, a blue collar guy, factory worker guy. You know, if he was married, his wife didn't have a job. You know, he made enough money so that his wife didn't have to work outside the home. That didn't mean she didn't work inside the home. Yeah, that she did housework, uh, but, you know, she didn't have get collect a paycheck. And, you know, they had larger families back then, maybe three, four, five kids. Uh, and 
the guy was able to support those kids on his middle-class income, uh, didn't have any credit cards, wasn't going into debt to support his wife who didn't have a job or his kids. He was able to save for retirement, take vacations, pay off his home mortgage, not just constantly refinance, but actually pay off the home mortgage. I mean, so what a middle-class family was like, life in the 20s, even the, you know, even the Depression years of the 30s, the 40s, 50s, 60s, what it meant to be middle class in America, I think the standard of living was far higher than what it means to be middle class today. You take a middle class family today, you know, A, you know, if there's a married couple there, they both have jobs. I mean, they're both working. Maybe some of them are working two or three jobs. If they have any kids at all, maybe they have one, maybe two, you know, they can afford that. They're, they're massively in debt. I mean, they got credit card debt. They got auto debt. They got student loans. They got nothing saved for retirement. They're living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, yeah, they got cell phones and, you know, and, and uh, you know, flat screen TVs. But that's not because of the government. I mean, that's just advances in consumer electronics. I mean, if you look at what the typical middle class family had in 1950, that the typical middle class family didn't have 50 years earlier. If you look at the advancement in uh, what they had in their standard of living, they had a lot more stuff then. You know, the gain was much bigger as far as, you know, having indoor plumbing and electricity and having a car instead of a horse and having air conditioning and, and all the various appliances uh, that, that were invented and all that stuff. I mean, that was a much bigger improvement to living standards than, you know, than having a, a cell phone and, and, and the things that we have now. And not that I'm saying these things aren't good, but if you want to compare the rate of advancement that we have now, as far as it impacts your quality of life, your standard of living, we haven't even come close uh, to what was achieved during that period. So for Donald Trump to pretend that the American middle class has never had it this good, that Americans have never been this successful, is complete nonsense. And the other thing is, on a relative basis, if you look at what it meant to be middle class in America, let's say in 1950, versus what it meant to be middle class in Europe, you know, the difference was huge, right? Americans had a much, much higher standard of living than the comparably situated families in any other country in the world. Today, that's not the case. I mean, there are plenty of countries where middle class have a higher standard of living than they do in America. But we had a massive lead that we have blown uh, over time. And so we are nowhere near where we used to be. And so it's disingenuous for Trump to try to claim that the American middle class is doing better than it's ever done and then claim that it's because of his policies. Oh, but I forgot I was talking about uh, Hurricane Florence. And one of the points that I, that I wanted to make, I just I, I, I digressed a couple of times, but I did want to finish up on the point was that I'm sure you're going to start to hear a lot of stories about, oh, this is going to be good for the GDP. You know, we're going to have to rebuild and repair. And, you know, this is going to help the economy. All this stuff is the broken window fallacy. I've gone over it many times, I think, on this podcast over the years. But when you have to send money to replace stuff that you used to have, it is not a positive because all you're doing is rebuilding what you had before. And so instead of spending money on something new, you're just replacing something that you already had. So you don't, you don't have the old stuff and the new stuff. You just have the old stuff back. Right. That is not a net gain. And what you don't see are all the things that aren't accomplished with the money that now has to be spent rebuilding what the natural disaster destroys. Right. You can't see that. You can see, oh, I have to rebuild this house. Right. Or my window broke. I have to pay somebody to fix my window that you can see. What you don't see is what you would have done with the money had you not had to use it to repair a window that broke. Because now, whatever you were going to spend that money on, that doesn't happen. And whoever was going to benefit from the spending of that money doesn't benefit. So yes, the, guy, the window repair guy benefits because he gets a check. But maybe somebody else, maybe, some, maybe I was going to buy a pair of shoes. And now I can't afford the shoes because I got to fix my window. So now the guy that was going to sell me the shoes, he's lost out on a sale. So we're never better off because natural disasters destroy stuff. And particularly when you're America and you have no savings, right? We don't have any savings for a rainy day. When it rains, we go into debt. We go deeper into debt. We're already massively in debt. I went over how much the deficits are going up. 
And, and again, too, I want to finish that thought. If we are running these massive deficits when the economy is supposedly great, greater than it's ever been, and the deficits are simultaneously larger than they've ever been, and we know historically that during good times, the deficits are small because they get bigger during bad times, what is going to happen to these deficits during the next recession? If we are spending this much money in a boom, how much is the government going to spend in a bust? And more importantly, how much is it going to borrow in a bust to spend? We know it's going to be the sky's the limit, especially if I'm right on the politics in that we're going to have uh, a democratic or democratic socialist president in 2020 with a democratically socialist Congress. And in fact, Janet Yellen was out today talking about how the next time we have a recession, the Fed needs to make clear that it's going to keep interest rates at zero for, for a lot longer. Like her, her policy is lower for longer, like, like longer than what the eight years we kept interest rates at eight years during the last recession. And that wasn't long enough for the next one. We're going to have to make sure the markets know that rates are going to stay at zero for an even longer period of time. That's because the fed is completely out of ammunition. I mean, they're not going to be able to get away with it next time. And the next, you know, round of uh, bailouts or quantitative easing, they're going to try to target that directly at the middle class, right? That's what they're going to do. It's going to be massive government spending on whether it's universal basic income or some crazy idea like that or just bigger unemployment benefits or governments just going out and just, you know, creating jobs and employing people directly. Who knows what they're going to do, but they're going to try to bypass the banking system, right? They're not going to try to create another wealth effect where you just jack up stock prices, right? At least they, they, they realize that that was no good, but they're not going to uh, get it completely. They're just going to say the government had the right idea, just the wrong delivery method, right? I mean, we need heroin. We just don't want to deliver it through the banking system. We want to inject it right into the uh, the behinds of the average American consumer. Uh, that's the way to do the stimulus. And of course, that is going to completely blow up. I mean, the dollar, which by then I think is already going to be a lot lower, uh, hasn't turned yet, but it will. That's when it's really going to start to collapse, when people start to appreciate uh, what is going to happen during the next economic downturn. Because if the government is spending this much money now, just imagine why nobody is connecting these dots, especially as they look back on the 10 years uh, since the financial crisis, and they can't even fathom, oh my God, wait a minute, You know we're going to have another recession. We're going to have another bear market. And if the deficits are this big now, what's going to happen then? And, you know, there's no way to cut rates enough to, to, to create a stimulus big enough, right? When you have a bubble this big and the bust is going to be this horrific, that's why I said earlier in this podcast, the mistake that I made was in thinking that the Federal Reserve would simply attempt to reflate the bubbles. I did not believe that they could actually succeed. But since they succeeded, they basically created a problem that is far greater than the one that I imagined or that I envisioned uh, existed. And so there's no way out of this. I mean, it's absolutely impossible when they try to reflate these bubbles, the whole thing will blow up right in their faces. Now, probably, though, the most important comment of the week I believe was from Mario Draghi. I was watching his press conference and somebody asked him a question. And the question was, would the ECB be willing to allow inflation to overshoot the 2% ceiling in the short run? You know, kind of just to make sure, uh, just as an insurance policy, because the ECB, they have a mandate to keep inflation close to, but below 2%. Now, the close to part makes no sense to me. Below 2% is fine. But I mean, if it's at 1.8%, there's no reason to try to get it to 1.9. 1.8 is fine. 1.7 is better, right? But but they're trying to pretend that they want to make it close to 2%, but not actually hit 2%. But anyway, so when Draghi was asked if in the short run, he would be willing to allow more than 2%, Draghi actually surprised me and said no. His answer was, our mandate is to stay below 2%, meaning that there is no room for an overshoot, which to me should have been a wake-up call to a lot of the currency traders who still believe that the Fed is the more hawkish of the central banks. They're not. The ECB 
is more hawkish. And the real divergence in monetary policy is that the ECB is going to be tighter than the Fed, especially, of course, when the Fed starts doing another round of QE and they slash rates to zero. But even before we get there, if you contrast Draghi's statement that we will not allow inflation to get to 2%, not even in the short run, to the Fed, and if you look at all the statements that I talked about coming out of Jackson Hole and Powell's speech, the Fed is saying that they're going to err on letting inflation break out, that they are fine with symmetrical inflation around 2%, meaning that we just want it to smooth out over time to be 2%, meaning if it was 1% for a while, well, then we're okay with 3% because it's symmetrical around 2 And they even said that you know they're going to be very cautious. They don't want to jump the gun. They want to just wait and see. You know, you know, let's take a you know whites of their eye approach before we fire. You know, we're going to put the inflation genie back in the bottle once it's clearly out. Right? That is what the Fed's position is. But the ECB is saying no. We're going to keep inflation under two percent no matter what. And so to me, they're staking out opposite positions. The ECB is uh, a tighter. Uh, and the hawkish bank, and the Fed is a dove. And therefore, the euro, on that basis alone, is going to be stronger than the dollar. In fact, there was a speech, uh, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, just this week, said publicly that their plan, their hope, is that the euro becomes a reserve currency that rivals the U.S. dollar because Europe is tired of being dependent on the dollar. In fact, he specifically mentioned the fact that you know, 90 plus percent of European payments for oil are made in dollars. He says, why is this? Why are we buying oil from Russia and paying in U.S. dollars? It makes no sense. And so Europe wants to wean itself from dollar dependence. And the European Central Bank is staking out a, a far more prudent, uh, a sounder money policy than is the Fed. Now, of course, remember, this is all on a relative basis because neither of these uh, central banks are pursuing sound money. So it's just, you know, on a relative basis, which central bank is the least reckless. And based on, you know, what they're saying now, it's the European central bank that is less reckless than that is the Fed. And this is very negative for the dollar and it is very positive for gold. But, you know, people still haven't figured that out. You know, the dollar had a down week, although it cut its losses Rather significantly today, dollar index still closed below 95. But what saved the dollar was a quote from the Trump administration today about these 200 billion in extra tariffs, right, coming on Chinese products, and that caused the dollar to rally. It also caused gold to drop about maybe 10 bucks, 11 bucks. It was up three, four dollars, and it ended up down seven. In fact, gold ended up down on the week, back below 1200. I think 1193, 1194, all because the president again reiterated that these tariffs are coming and that they're going to be great for the United States. He says, hey, we're going to just start making things ourselves and we're going to be collecting all these tariffs as if we're collecting the tariffs from the Chinese. The Chinese don't pay the tariffs. I mean, why doesn't anybody understand this? The tariffs are taxes that are paid for by Americans. So to the extent that the U.S. government is collecting any revenue from tariffs, it's just collecting it from American citizens. So if higher taxes are great, why is the president touting the benefit of lower taxes? I mean, what is it? Are lower taxes good or are higher taxes good? They can't both be good, yet higher tariffs are simply higher taxes. Now, yes, they're a different type of tax, but it's still a tax and it's still going to be paid by Americans. But the reality is, Yes, the U.S. government will collect some additional revenue because of higher tariffs, but also there will be less consumption because of higher tariffs. Things will be too expensive, and so things that might have been purchased simply won't be bought at all. That's what's going to happen. And the damage is going to be felt strongest in the U.S. Now, right now it's not, because right now it's not the tariffs that are damaging the economies. It's the the threat of tariffs. And it's simply what people believe the tariffs will do to the relative players, right, in the economic uh, war. And since all of the investors have it backwards, right, they all think that tariffs are good for the dollar and good for the U.S., right? Well, it's the U.S. assets that are benefiting from the threat of tariffs, from the potential. 
But as the tariffs are actually enacted and as they work their way through the economies, the real losers will be revealed and it will be the United States. Our trading partners are not going to be the losers because America decides to impose tariffs on its own citizens. And again, the tariffs are not on the Chinese. They're on Americans that want to buy Chinese products. But what is the net effect? You know, take a look at, you know, what happens to Americans versus the Chinese. So let's say Americans buy fewer imported products. OK, so we buy less stuff. We have less stuff. That's it. And the stuff that we buy just has to cost more money. I mean, Trump says we're going to be making the stuff ourselves. No, we're not. None of the stuff that we're importing are we going to make ourselves. We don't have the ability to make it. We don't have the factories. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the trained workers, nor are we going to invest in building that infrastructure uh, in time to replace the lost imports, nor would anybody be dumb enough to do it because nobody knows how long the tariffs are going to remain in effect. So tariffs could benefit an existing business to the extent that it's already there and it can benefit from being able to raise its prices on having less competition. But an, an industry that doesn't exist is not going to come into existence based on tariffs that we have no idea how long they're going to be there. So this is going to be a net negative for Americans. How is it going to hurt the Chinese? The Chinese may sell fewer products to Americans, but that means they're going to sell those products to somebody else. Either they're going to consume the products themselves or they're going to export those products to citizens in another market. Now, maybe they won't get quite as much money as they would have got from the American because they're selling it to the next highest bidder. So they're still going to sell their products and maybe they'll get a little less money, but the sales are still going to get made. Right? But in America, we're going to have to do without the products. And to the extent that we buy them, we're just going to have to pay the higher price. So I think the economy that is going to suffer more is going to be the U.S. And of course, to the extent that the dollar actually goes down and then the Chinese currency and other currencies go up, then it's possible that the Chinese businesses could actually make more money selling their products to other people. And so they're not even going to be out uh, anything. They're, they're, if their currencies go up, which their currencies should go up, once people actually understand the true nature of the U.S. economy. See, right now, everybody is buying the dollar because they're worried about how much the, the tariffs are going to hurt the global economy. They don't understand that the tariffs are going to hurt the U.S. more. They're going to hurt the nation that's issuing the currency that they're buying. And, of course, they still believe that the U.S. is this island of prosperity, you know, in, in a sea of uh, turmoil and recession, that the U.S. economy is in great shape and it's, you know, going to keep growing as far as the eye can see. They don't appreciate how close we are to the next recession and the, the severity, the magnitude of that recession and how the Fed's policy response and the government's policy response is doomed to fail, but is doomed to collapse the dollar. Now, I meant to mention, too, we got the retail sales numbers that came out for August, and it was the smallest advance in, in retail sales in, in six months. Now, they did upwardly revise the prior month, uh, but that may have been just, uh, you know, the end of the boom, right? Everybody was excited and spending because this was a huge drop from the prior month. And in fact, there was a 1.7% increase in, in sales of gasoline, right? And obviously, that's not because Americans are driving more. That's because Americans are spending more money for gas. I think if you X that out, I think... Uh, retail sales would have actually dropped by a tenth of a percent. But to me, again, I think the fact that retail sales are up is far more a reflection of prices being up than actual raw volumes being up. Because remember, none of this stuff is adjusted for inflation. It's just how much is being spent. And if prices go up, you know, your spending goes up until you actually reduce your volume enough to offset the fact that things are costing more and you can't afford it. And of course, a lot of the buying is being done on credit, is being done with borrowed money. And the cost of borrowing money is going up. In fact, the yield on the 10-year actually got above 3% briefly this morning. It closed at 2 spot 994 But that's the highest weekly close we've had in some time. And if you look at this chart, Yields to me really look like they are getting ready to break out. I mean, we've been up in this level a few times and haven't been able to break up, but the chart looks extremely bullish for yields, which means it looks bearish for bond prices, which move in the opposite direction. So rising interest rates 
are a negative thing for an economy that is this highly indebted, right, on the federal level, on the corporate level, on the individual level. But of course, it's not just the price of borrowing money that's going up. It's the price of buying stuff that's going up. That's why we had the increase in retail sales, although the increase in August retail sales, which was out today, was much lower than what the market had anticipated. The estimate was for a 0.4 percentage point gain, and we only rose by 0.1. Now, granted, they revised the July number up from 0.5 to 0.7, but I think that simply highlights the degree to which retail sales slowed down in the month of August. But you know, the only reason the number was positive was because consumers spent 1.7% more on gasoline. Now, I don't think they drove a lot more. They didn't buy more gas. They just paid more for the gas they bought. If you take that out, I think uh, retail sales dropped by one-tenth of a percent. But remember, all of these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So if retail sales are up, there's a good chance that the reason they're up is because retail prices are up. So it doesn't mean consumers are buying more stuff, but it does mean they're paying more money for the stuff they are buying. And of course, eventually, as prices keep rising, you end up spending more money, but you get less stuff. And what counts is how much you have, not how much you pay for what you have. So I think all this evidence, all these numbers are evidencing inflation, not a growing economy. But I want to finish up this podcast by talking about politics. And again, this is what I have been warning about, this socialist wave that is building and gaining momentum. This is another New York election. It's not a national election. It's for the state Senate. Uh, The election was in Brooklyn. But what happened was a a 16-year Democratic incumbent, guy's uh, 68 years old, so he's been in politics for a long time, And he lost in the primary to a young political novice. I, you know, she's under 30 years old. I forget her exact age. Julia Salazar, nice looking young woman, but she is a democratic socialist and proud of it. And she won. I think she's of Hispanic descent, but so was Martin Dillian. I think Martin Dillian actually his parents were born here in Puerto Rico. I forget uh, the roots of um, Salazar's parents. They're not from Puerto Rico. But this guy's a Democrat. I'm sure he's a liberal Democrat. He just wasn't far enough to the left. And as a result, he lost in the primary, which in this district is the main election because the Republicans haven't even fielded a challenger. So she is now going to run unopposed for the state Senate. And as I said before on this podcast, in a lot of these districts, especially since the way they get gerrymandered, if you're in a Democratic district, you don't have to worry about the right. I mean, you don't, the Republicans aren't going to beat you, but you have to worry about the left. And now if you're not a socialist, there's room on your left. And that's what happened. That's what's going on. These Democrats are going down. These old school establishment Democrats who thought they were safe because no Republican could beat them are now losing in their own primaries to somebody who's a bigger socialist than they are. And of course, this sends chills down the spine of incumbents and it forces them to move left in order to fend off any kind of insurgent socialist challenger. So this woman is now going to be in the Senate. But the the idea here is that her socialist message won, right? She advertises that she is a democratic socialist. In fact, if you go to her website uh, under Meet Julia, where it, it describes her, she's an advocate, a tenant, a feminist, a democratic socialist, a union member, and a proud daughter of immigrants, right? So she's got all those buzzwords in there. But why is she saying she's a tenant? Oh, obviously, because she cares about the tenants and not the the greedy landlords, right? I'm a tenant. I, I don't own any property. I mean, I rent, right? So I'm not one of the evil, rich landlords. I mean, I, you know, I advocate for the tenants, right? I mean, why? Obviously, because a lot more people are tenants, than landlords. I mean, most people don't own apartment buildings. Most people rent, right? And so if you're trying to get the votes of the masses to win because, you know, you're just counting votes, right? Well, you get a lot of votes by promising to steal from the landlords, to steal from the property owners, 
and give money to uh, the tenants. In fact, you know that's one of her key issues is rent control, universal rent control, making it harder for landlords to raise their rents, which is all about destroying property values, vilifying the the property owner, and glorifying the tenant. Oh, the, you know the the tenant is the virtuous one, and you've got this greedy person just trying to you know gouge them with rent. I mean. Basically, that greedy person is supplying that tenant with a place to live, with shelter. I mean, you can't expect them to supply it for nothing. And, of course, the landlords, you know, they, they have to put a lot of money into buying properties, maintaining properties. I mean, you know, you ha- they have to be at a certain uh, state in order for them to be rented. And when you have a tenant, you have to continuously take care uh, of your property. But obviously, you know, this is an appeal to something for nothing. Uh, let's, you know, let's let's lower your rent. But rent control has been a disaster. I mean, apart from the fact that it's horrible, it's theft, it should be illegal, it destroys housing markets. I mean, first of all, nobody wants to build housing where you have a lot of rent control. So you end up having a shortage of new constructions because people don't want to commit capital into uh, a place where they don't really own the property. I mean, if you have government bureaucrats dictating the rent, then you really don't even own the property. Right. Because the return on property is rent. And if the the governments can tell you what you can rent the property for, then you don't really own it. So why spend your own money developing property that you don't even own? And then, of course, if the property is already there, what happens as a result of rent control is that it falls into disrepair because the landlords don't have the incentive to maintain the properties, because if they spend money uh, fixing up properties, well, they can't recoup the cost by raising the rent. So what happens is, you know, things just, you know, dilapidate. I mean, things break and they don't get fixed and the buildings become run down. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the landlords just abandon the buildings completely. They become liabilities instead of assets. But it, it, it creates all this urban blight. I mean, the last thing you want to do if you're concerned about housing, the last thing you want to do is restrict the rights of, of, of property owners, because then they're not going to develop housing. They're not going to maintain housing. And yet, but, you know, the voters don't know this. They All they just hear is something for nothing. Oh, I'm going to get something for free. I'm going to get lower rent. Look, you know, if you want lower rent, then negotiate it in your lease. You know, a lot of people get upset because, hey, you know, the landlord can raise my rent, you know, when the lease is up at the end of the year. Well, sign a longer term lease. Nothing that stops you from signing a five-year lease, a 10-year lease. In fact, a lot of landlords would love it if they could have that kind of uh, visibility on their cash flow. I'm sure if you called up your landlord and said, hey, can I have a five-year lease? Probably give it to you. But most tenants don't want a five-year lease. They They want the flexibility to be able to move at the end of a year. Well, if you want the flexibility to move, well, then your landlord's got the flexibility to raise your rent. Of course, there's a limit to how much he can raise it because he can't raise it above the market. Otherwise, he won't have a tenant. And in fact, you know, having a tenant is very valuable. I mean, landlords, the last thing they want to do is have a vacancy. You know, it it hurts the landlord more. I mean, if you're the tenant, you could pick up and move whenever you want. You can rent another apartment, but then you leave your landlord high and dry. I mean, he doesn't have any rent, but he still has to pay his mortgage if he has one. He still has to pay his property taxes. He's still got to pay all kinds of bills. So the landlord is far more vulnerable in many cases than the tenant. The tenant can move and go anywhere. Boom. And then the landlord is stuck trying to replace the lost revenue. So, you know, they generally will try to keep a tenant from leaving, you know, and they'll maybe even give you a discount when you renew your lease because they, they'd rather not have to have somebody else moving in, especially if you've been a good tenant and you're paying your rent on time. I mean, why? take a chance on an unknown quantity. If you're a good tenant, then you know generally uh, you can negotiate good deals uh, with landlords. In fact, a lot of times, even without rent control, if you're a good tenant, chances are you're paying below market rent for your apartment because the landlord appreciates the fact that you're there and values having you as a good, reliable tenant and w- would rather take less money from you than take more money from an unknown quantity, right? But, you know, all of this gets votes. This is all part of the appeal of socialism by the property owner, the landlord. He's the bad guy. He's the mean guy, right? I have to write a check to him. It's not fair. And so uh, we're going to uh, have rent control. But if you go and spend some time on her website, you will look at all of the things that she's promising, housing and education, uh, civil rights, you know, reproductive 
uh, justice or equal pay, all the, you know, the, the watchwords or the catchwords uh, for the liberals. And it's all free stuff. In fact, in education, not only is she advocating for free college, right, in, I guess, the, the city colleges that are there, uh, but that the government provide free housing to the students. So not only, you know, you're going to get tuition on the taxpayer, but we're going to pay to have you move out out of your parents' house so that you can live off campus, so that you can have your own your own apartment, and we're going to provide that as well. I mean, there's no limit to all the free stuff, yet where is the money going to come from? I mean, go read her platform. There is nothing on there about any specific tax that she wants to raise in order to pay for all this free stuff that she's doling out in order to get people to vote for. In fact, the only reference to taxes that I found on her website was on the front page where she's talking about the subway system. And it says, tax the rich and fix the subway. I'll read what it says. It says, the New York political establishment has brought our subways to the verge of collapse with decades of neglect and underfunding. We need to fix the transit system we rely on now. And we need to make sure the wealthy pay their fair share. <laughs> The wealthy pay their fair share. First of all, the wealthy are already paying more than their fair share in taxes now. So if we were to make the wealthy pay their fair share, we'd have to give them a tax cut. But, you know, if you talked to Miss Salazar, I'm sure her impression of the wealthy who she wants to tax more don't even ride the subway. In fact, as far as she knows, they don't even know where the subway is. They couldn't even find a station, right? They're, they're, they're riding in their, their limos, right? But the point is, if you don't even use the subway, what is your fair share in paying for the cost of the subway? I would say zero, right? If you're not getting any benefit from the subway, if you never use the subway, why should you have to pay for the cost of maintaining the subway? I mean, that's why the subway isn't free. You have to buy a token. They don't just give them away. I, I'm not really sure what they cost. Maybe two and a half dollars, three dollars. I know that when I was a kid in New York City, uh, I think a subway token was 50 cents. And so obviously it's gone up a lot since then. And I remember too, a slice of pizza was about was 50 cents also. So a slice of pizza and a, a subway token were pretty much about the same amount. Although on Sundays, I remember it was free. We didn't have to pay. They, they, they stopped doing that a long time ago, that where you can ride. Or was it half price? You know, now I can't. Maybe it was half price. Maybe it was a quarter. I can't remember. But there was some kind of deal that we got. Maybe it was, yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was uh, half price. Yeah, I'm sure they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have made it free. But, but in any event, what is the fair share? If you don't use the subway, right, then you don't pay for the subway. That's why the subway tokens cost money. So the people who use the subway pay the cost of maintaining the subway. The more you use it, right? The more you pay, but the more benefit you derive from the subway system. And so to the extent that the subways are in disrepair and they need to spend more money, they need to raise the price of a subway token. What she's basically saying is that the people who are riding the subway are not paying enough money to maintain the subway system. And so what has to happen is we have to raise the cost of a subway token. But no, 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 that's not the way to get votes to tell people we're going to make it more expensive to ride the subway. Now, the other thing is, well, maybe the government is squandering the money. I mean, what's going on? Where is the money going that the government is collecting from all these subway tokens? Why is that no longer sufficient to maintain the subway system? Why is it on the verge of collapse when they've been getting all this money from all these tokens? What have they been doing with it? But no, she doesn't want to investigate any corruption that may be taking place at the city. And of course, it's probably because of inflation. Probably the cost of inflation has been making the cost of operating the subways go up so much, but politicians have been reluctant to increase the cost of a token commensurate with the cost of maintaining the system. And that's probably the problem. But now what her solution is, is like, we'll make the wealthy pay their fair share. Well, their fair share is zero because they don't use the subway. Now, maybe they do. And to the extent they do, well, then they're going to they're going to buy a token. Now, I'm sure uh, somebody would make the argument, well, the, the wealthy benefit from the subway because their employees use the subway to get to work, so therefore they benefit. And I guess you could say, sure, indirectly, but directly, no, they don't benefit. The people who use it benefit because if they didn't have the subway, they would take a bus. They would ride a bike. Uh, they would carpool. They could walk or they would find a job that was closer to where they lived. I mean, the primary beneficiary 
of the subway are the people who choose to ride the subway and who buy the tokens. But of course, you know, that's not how you get votes. It's not by promising uh, to raise the cost of a token. It's let's steal the money, something from nothing, make the rich pay. But the bottom line is that is the only reference on her website to taxes. Just make the rich pay their fair share, but that's it. I mean, nothing about what tax specifically she wants to raise and by how much she's going to raise it and how much money is going to come in. None of that. Just this is going to be provided, that's going to be provided, and the people vote for it. This is how dumb the electorate has become. And this is what I have been warning about on this podcast, this shift in the political spectrum that the left or the Democrats are moving to the left and the Democratic incumbents are either going to be replaced by socialists or are going to have to embrace socialism openly themselves in order to maintain their seats. So this is very dangerous because when it does hit the fan, and it should hit the fan before the 2000 elections, a Democrat is going to be the next president, and the Democrats are going to control Congress, and it's not going to be the Democratic Party of Bill Clinton or even Barack Obama. It will be the Democratic Party of Bernie Sanders. Whether Sanders is president or not, he'll be the standard bearer. He's going to be uh, the personification of you know whoever we elect, and this is a hard turn to the left, and believe me, you know, we're going back to the anniversary of the financial crisis and the 10-year uh, collapse of Lehman Brothers. The next uh, crisis, which again is going to be a sovereign debt crisis and a dollar crisis, so it's going to be much, much worse. The bailouts are not going to work. The stimulus is not going to work, but they're not going to try the same type of stimulus. They're not going to talk about ejecting the monetary heroin into the banking system to create a wealth effect. They're going to want to inject the stimulus right into the rear ends of uh, the Democratic voters. They're going to want to give the money directly to the people, whether it's through some kind of ridiculous basic income type program or government make work or forgiving the student loans or, you know, whatever they're going to do, it's going to be about showering money that the Fed creates out of thin air and putting it directly in the pockets uh, of, of the voters. And that is just pure unadulterated inflation. But now you're going to have all the other inflation chickens coming home to roost. And remember, as I said, or at the beginning of the podcast, the mistake that I made, uh, in forecasting the 2008 financial crisis was in believing that the Fed's attempt to reflate the bubbles in real estate and stocks would fail. I mean, I knew they would attempt it. I just didn't know they would succeed. The fact that they succeeded has simply set us up for something much, much worse. But the next time, the minute they try, it's going to blow up in their faces. Because remember, if you go back to the years prior to the 2008 financial crisis. The dollar was at least going down. The dollar was at an all-time record low in the summer of 2008. It had been falling for six years. So going into the crisis, even though nobody saw it coming, people were at least worried about the dollar. They were worried about the big deficits, even though those deficits were small by today's comparisons. People were still worried about them. They were worried about the trade deficits. So the dollar was low. People had been selling the dollar for years. Gold hit 1,000. It was under 300. People were smart enough to buy gold. They knew that something was going to go wrong. They didn't know what, but they just were worried and they bought gold as insurance. Today, nobody's worried about anything. Nobody's buying gold. The dollar's been soaring. Everybody is completely all in on the U.S. economy. And the last crisis, again, was about private mortgages that were owned by a lot of private investors all around the world, U.S. Uh, mortgage debt that blew up. The next debt is U.S. Treasury debt that's blowing up. And most of this is owned, of course, not by foreign investors, but maybe by foreign central banks. But they're already lightening up. So when you have a crisis of sovereign debt, when the crisis is the dollar, because investors who got caught off guard bought the dollars back that they had already sold in 2008. Everybody is loaded up in dollars. They are going to dump them. This time they're going to run from the dollar. So the dollar is going to be the epicenter of the crisis. It's U.S. government debt that's going to be under pressure, that's going to be of questionable value, not uh, mortgage debt. And when they try this 
uh, democratic version of stimulus. Because remember, the stimulus that we have now got started under a Republican, right? And um, it got expanded, of course, under a Democrat. And even though Trump, you know, you might think, oh, Trump uh, is a conservative. No, he's not. I mean, he's look, he's he's a big spender, as I said earlier in this podcast. But when the power is turned over to a democratic socialist, right, the policies are going to be far more oriented to Main Street than Wall Street. Not that it's going to work. Right. But the politics of it is going to dictate that that's the way it's going to go. But the whole thing is going to blow up and the dollar is going to drop like a stone. Gold is going to take off. And the one thing that you should have learned from the 2008 financial crisis is you can be around the quarter from an economic catastrophe and nobody sees it coming. That's the amazing thing about the financial crisis that so few people were prepared for it. So few people even thought it was possible, yet it happened. And were it not for the bailouts, right, people now acknowledge that it would have been worse than the Great Depression. Well, the next one will be worse than the Great Depression because thanks to the last round of bailouts, the next round of bailouts are impossible. So you've got to be prepared. And I think ironically, again, my strategy, which worked so well from 2001 till 2008, because that's when the dollar was falling and gold was rising. So I prepared for that crisis in advance and I was making a ton of money until the crisis hit. And then uh, the dollar went up and gold went down, but I was getting a lot of media attention back then. Fast forward to now and the years leading up to this crisis, the dollar is rising, not falling. Gold stocks have been falling, not rising. And nobody uh, cares what I have to say. I'm basically, you know, talking in a, in, a, in, a, in a media vacuum. I mean, I'm talking on my podcast, which I didn't have back then, but I'm not in on the conventional media. So people are not hearing this and, and people are not positioning in gold and they're not selling the dollar. So now when the same people who were blindsided in 2008 are blindsided again, they don't have any gold to sell. They need to buy gold. They don't have any dollars to buy. They need to sell the dollars they already own. So the key is to be prepared for this crisis, to have your portfolio ready, to learn the lessons of the 2008 financial crisis, to understand what's different and what's the same, and to act accordingly. And to me, the main difference between now and then, other than the fact that going into this crisis, the opposite direction is happening in gold and and the dollar, which means I think the opposite is going to happen in the aftermath of the crisis. But the biggest difference, I think, is going to be the severity in that the next one is going to be so much worse than the first one, especially for people who are not invested. See, the 08 financial crisis, yeah, the stock market went down, right? But if you didn't own any stocks, you know, it didn't matter to you. And as long as you didn't lose your job, you were fine. This next crisis is going to hit everybody because when the dollar collapses and prices skyrocket, everybody is going to be paying higher prices, whether you have investments or not. So this is going to be far more impactful on Main Street uh, than it was last time. And again, the last time investors, as long as they held on, the Fed bailed them out. The stock market came back. The real estate market came back. They're not going to get that lucky the next time. Investors are not going to get bailed out by the government. That's done. You need to bail yourself out in advance by properly positioning yourself before the crisis rather than hoping the government's going to bail you out after the crisis. (music) 